traditional education, unless you're a gifted educator, puts a very low ceiling on students' ability to actually do work that matters. For me, the, the, the guiding light is not progressive or traditional, it's quality. It's what's the quality of work and quality of thinking and quality of human beings we're creating. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello once again, my fellow residents of Spaceship Earth. Welcome to season four of the Rethinking Education podcast, Education's Critical Friend. My name is James Mannion, and it is my great delight to welcome you aboard. 68 episodes, I believe, and still going strong into season four. And what a guest we have to kickstart this new season. I am insanely excited to bring you what I found to be really quite a game-changing conversation with Ron Berger, who really needs no introduction, but I will do so in a few moments anyway. But first, education is a wonderful thing, is it not? It is a beautiful thing. It's a hopeful thing. But if you're a regular listener to this podcast, and even if you're not, you're probably already aware that the education system has some areas for improvement. Here are just a few of the problems that we face in England at the moment, and many of these will be replicated in other countries around the world. We now have 1.8 million persistent absentees from school. The number just keeps going up and up and up. I was just listening back to something from a year ago, and the figure then was 1 million persistent absentees. It's now almost double that. We have Ofsted, the school's inspectorate, in a state of ongoing crisis. We have an ever-deepening mental health crisis among young people and adults alike. Teacher recruitment and retention is through the floor. To name just a few... But it doesn't have to be this way, and I often feel so sort of optimistic, but also frustrated that it wouldn't take that much to create an education system that really helps every single young person and adult to grow and to flourish and to thrive. And so let's fix it. On Saturday, September the 23rd this year, 2023, we're hosting the second ever National Rethinking Education Conference, and it's an opportunity for you to come along and be a part of the solution. Those of you who are physically able to travel to London, that is, and some people are travelling from Australia, I believe, and in particular to the beautiful Parliament Hill School in Camden. We have an absolutely stellar lineup this year with talks by people like Sir Anthony Selden, Valerie Hannan, Tom Sherrington, Alison Creel, Adele Bates, Sue Roffey, Naomi Fisher. The list goes on and on and on. Ian Cunningham, Amelia Peterson. There's over a hundred speakers, many of them former podcast guests. There are still a few tickets available and you can use the promo code back to school to receive a 35% discount. All one word, all uppercase, back to school, 35% discount. There's a link to the ticket page in the show notes. You can now download the full 20-page program and all the talk titles, session descriptions and speaker bios and photographs are available on the Rethinking Ed site. Again, there's a link in the show notes. So do come along if you can. And if you can't, maybe there's someone who you know that you might give a nudge to. Okay, and so to today's guest. 
Ron Berger is the Chief Program Officer for the non-profit school improvement network Expeditionary Learning, a national network in the United States of over 160 public project-based schools in 30 states. Ron was a public school teacher and carpenter in rural Massachusetts for 25 years. His writing and speaking centers remain his writing and speaking centers around inspiring quality and character in students, specifically through project-based learning, original scientific and historical research, service learning, and the infusion of arts. He's also the author of two books, An Ethic of Excellence and An Ethic of Quality, and it's the first of those two, An Ethic of Excellence, that's the focus of this conversation today on the 20th anniversary of that book's publication. And if you haven't read An Ethic of Excellence, it's a slim tome, it's very easy to read in a day or two. I heartily recommend that you pause this podcast momentarily and get yourself a copy. It has been a game-changing text for me, and indeed this conversation was a game-changing conversation. If you're a teacher, or a student, or just a human being, you may be aware of the phenomenon of Austin's Butterfly, a video about a very young child who draws an insanely good picture of a butterfly as a result of receiving critique and feedback on several drafts of not-such-amazing-pictures-of-butterflies by a group of their equally young peers. This video has been very widely viewed around the world, and it's often used to illustrate the power of persistence and of drafting and redrafting your work, something that we'll discuss later in this episode. My son, for one, was very excited that I was going to be interviewing the Austin's butterfly guy, having seen it on several occasions throughout his schooling, or maybe I made him watch it at home at some point. Probably a bit of both, to be honest. Anyway, as I say, this was a massive conversation for me, not only because Ron showed me the way to the escape hatch from the progressive traditionalist debate, a discussion that has dominated many of these podcasts in the past, and perhaps too many, but perhaps most importantly, the thing for me that I really took away from this conversation was about the importance of culture and how you turn around the culture of a school where the norm is for kids to not want to try to a culture where the kids really want to try and really want to work hard. How do you flip that switch? Ron has a brilliant answer to that question, which absolutely blows my mind because he makes it seem so simple and so achievable and indeed has demonstrated that it's achievable in many schools and it just seems so very important that we all work to make this happen as widely and as quickly as possible. So without further ado I will now hand over to my recent amazingly fascinating conversation with Ron Berger. I hope you enjoy the show. Ron Berger, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. James, thank you so much for hosting me. It's an absolute delight. I have been very much looking forward to this conversation. And I, th I think that as a, as a starting off point, when we spoke briefly last week, we, we stumbled upon the interesting fact that you started teaching and you this sounds really cheesy, but you don't you don't look old enough because I'm, I'm no spring chicken. And you started teaching in the year that I was born, which was 1976. 
Um, and this year marks the 20th anniversary of your fantastic, it was your first book, wasn't it? Uh, an ethic of an ethic of excellence uh, for the for those of you who are viewing rather than listening. Um, so it's an interesting time to to reflect back on that book and the journey that you've been on since then. And we'll get to that. But first of all, I'm interested to hear about the journey that your that your teaching career took from '76 through to writing an ethic of excellence. To what extent did the craftsman teacher that you describe and and the other teachers that you describe in the book? To what extent was that sort of pretty pretty ready to go out of the box in the seventies, and to what extent did that sort of evolve over time, and how did that how did that journey take shape? I know you touch on some of those some of those that story in the book, but I'd just like to hear it in your own words, if you would. Yes, thanks, James, and I very much appreciate being able to share that book. Uh, is twenty years old, but still very real to me. I haven't changed my feelings or my vision in any way since that book was written, so it still feels very relevant. And I, I love that you're lifting it up. Um, I, I would start by saying I think we have this great myth in education that people are just born great teachers, and I think that myth is often fueled by Hollywood movies that just show heroic individual teachers doing it all on their own winning over kids who are who are unwinnable to sir with love set in england with sydney potier was like the first of those great movies now there's been dozens since then yeah. these your hero movies and i think why that's not always so helpful is that i don't think it's individual and i don't think that people are just born great teachers i think there are a lot of people who are born with great, a great predilection for teaching, a great propensity to be good teachers, or a passion for teaching. And I, I think I'm in that category. I love teaching. I've always loved it. But it would be such a mistake to think that any of us jump into the profession fully equipped and skilled to do it really well. And I think we learn so much from our colleagues. And I was fortunate just the year you were born, I got my teaching certificate and started teaching. And I was benefiting from the late 1960s, early 70s education movement that really leaned heavily into inquiry, curiosity, discovery, hands-on learning, and student empowerment, giving agency to students. And so I was so fortunate to find some schools, we call them public schools in the United States, free community schools, that had been filled with younger, more innovative educators who were trying to give kids more agency, more ability to have choices, to direct things, to take responsibility for their learning, to do real hands-on research. And I was blessed with incredible mentors. So the, the, the colleagues that I had really shaped me into the teacher I am. And I owe them tremendously in a number of different schools there in those early years. And I think that's true for most teachers. I don't think many of us were individual stars right from the beginning who didn't learn from each other. And so I, I think it's it's a mistake to say people are born great teachers. And I certainly was not. I learned so much from from collaborating with my colleagues who had this new and I think powerful vision of the potential of kids. Mm, yeah, I see. Thank you for that. It's very, yeah, it's very, um, 
interesting to 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 reflect on on that idea like, there are there are some there are some outliers aren't there you know i'm, I'm just thinking the, the very last podcast that i recorded just uh, then released two days ago was with a guy i don't know if you know him called Der- Derry hannam who um who wrote a book recently called um another way is possible becoming a democratic teacher in a state school and he talks about doing this really really interesting innovative work some of which has echoes with your own work so the first thing that he did was to sit the kids into a circle and to say what shall we do <laughs> you know and it was very much about co-construction but he he'd read lots and lots of that sort of what's sometimes described as quite radical literature now some of the, that stuff from the 60s and 70s um and he did seem to sort of arrive out of the box with this with this quite strong clear vision and seemingly quite an intuitive feel for what this would look like in practice um but absolutely, you know, the, the vast majority of teachers don't arrive like that. I know that I certainly struggled for many years. And you write in the book, we'll, we'll maybe come to that a bit later on, but it might be worth touching on it now. You, you write in the book about the importance of apprenticeships and how amazing it is that, that in, in schools, teachers are often left on their own. Even trainee teachers are often left on their own and they're observed maybe once or twice or three times a year. Um, and that sort of apprenticeship idea that that, that exists in other trades and I know you you know keen carpenter and in the building trade and in other professions apprenticeships are really key and what happens in the absence of that is that teachers sort of cobble together some strategies that just about get them through the day and often that's their mold set isn't it for 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 their career absolutely so and I I'm sure that there are outliers who are born uh as as really gifted teachers. I wouldn't put myself in that category. But I would also say that even those people um, learn from the, they're building off the work of others who who they've read about or learned about. So they're keeping on a tradition that they've also learned from. But I think any, whether it's a democratic classroom or a project-based classroom or a classroom of equity and empowerment, it's one thing to have that philosophy and vision. It's another thing to do it really well. And I think doing it really well is a craft. It takes a lot of skill. Being able to really challenge students in the best way that empowers them and pushes them and yet honors them, it takes craft and practice. And it doesn't happen right away for almost anyone I know. And it's true for me that I. it was a real interesting counterpoint for me in my life that because I made so little as a teacher, because teaching in a public community school in the United States, rurally where I did for low-income students, the, the salary was really low. It really was not a, I couldn't live on that salary and have a family on that salary. And mm-hmm. so I did work as a carpenter for 25 years in addition to my teaching. And carpentry does have a much more sensible view of you wouldn't take a first day on the job carpenter and say, build a house from scratch. And we're just going to come back once a week and check on you. <laughs> I, like That would be insane. You go through years and years of apprenticeship and journeyman and status where you're working under master carpenters and working under journeyman carpenters and learning the trade really well. And many years out, you might be running a whole house. But when you're first on the job, you are not in that role. You're learning from the crew around you and from mentors. 
But it is really crazy that maybe the most important resource we have in the world, our children, we take teachers who have just gotten their degree and leave them on their own to build the house with those kids and check on them once a week or once a month. And here's another strange thing. Those teachers have as much responsibility on the first day of school as they will ever have for the next 40 years. It, it, there's no building of responsibility based on your growth and skill. It's like you get 100% of it on day one. And it's not a sensible approach to building great craft in teaching to just think, let's take the person who just graduated from medical school and hasn't done her residency yet and hasn't done any of that and put her right in surgery and have her start doing surgery on people, even though she's never done a surgery residency underneath someone who does. You know, like, I don't know, it, it's it's an expedient thing because it's cheaper, but we pay a big price for it. Yeah, yeah, completely. And now the in this country, certainly there's been a change in the way that teachers are trained. Like it used to be that you would spend most of the first year um, you know, on on placements, but also getting lots of support through a university. And now there's lots of sort of on the job training. And so it's literally, you know, you go through the door and just piece it together as you as you go. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, yeah, so we, we might return to that to that question at the end, because there's an interesting the, the, the way that the book ends, where, you, where there's lots of people who are very urgently sort of asking you at a conference once, how are we going to scale this up? And, and you know, how, how do we how do we, you know, supercharge this approach? Um, and, and let's circle back to that. But but so 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 you mentioned there that that your that your early career was shaped a lot by the by the thinking of the 60s and 70s. And you mentioned inquiry and discovery and, and lots of student agency and so on. And they would be that 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 would be considered a progressive ideology, you know. Yes. That lots of people would identify with 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 a with a more traditionalist approach for the for the reason that they that they don't think that the progressive stuff works. And there's been lots of very very strong critiques of progressive ideas in recent years. Um, and and clearly you like you, the the work of, of the, that you did and the work of of the EL movement, the expeditionary learning movement, the organization more widely. It does look sort of progressive on the tin, if you like, on the label. The, the, the first thing, I think there's some key principles on the EL website. And the first one is um, about the importance of discovery. Um, <clears throat> and there's lots of emphasis on project-based learning, which I think we'll probably get into later. Um, and just like with anything, you can do you can do carpentry well and you can make a total pig's ear of it and cut your thumb off. Just like that with 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 progressive education, you can you can implement them well and you can implement them not so well. And it does seem that you really nailed it. <laughs> like it, it, it's, it's an amazing version of a progressive uh, education um, that you describe in, in an ethic of excellence. And so I was uh, I'm keen to understand, uh, to go back to that question about the journey that you went on, you you um, started in 76. And then I think is it after about eight years, you had a year out and you, you you just focused on carpentry for a year. And then you went back in. And then about another seven or eight years later, you took another year out, didn't you? And you did a master's with Howard Gardner and you were visiting lots of exceptional classrooms and and learning lots but i just wonder at what point in that journey would you say that the the vision that you described that the the sort of the approach that you describe in in the book was fairly sort of fully formed if you had to put a year on it what would you what would you say there huh 
Well, I love your um, starting this off, James, with talking about the different heritages of progressive education or traditional education. And it's not fully binary, but there is really, it, it's fair to say there's a progressive tradition and there's a traditional tradition. And the work of my entire career absolutely comes from the progressive tradition. I, my work was really built off the the U.S. educators, Francis Parker and then Dewey. Um, and all the movement of the 60s and early 70s that I build off is, is Dewey-esque. It's all comes from Dewey, I think. And I feel like he built a lot off Francis Parker in the 1800s. This idea that kids are capable of way more than we imagine, and that when kids can connect their academic learning to real life learning, that that there is a power there, a passion there that you can instill in kids and unleash in kids. It really is a progressive tradition, and it really does come from from Parker and Dewey, in my mind. And then lots of 60s and 70s thinkers are what influenced me. But I think when the progressive education, it, when progressive education is critiqued as being too soft or standards are too low, I think often that's true. I, I I would much rather visit a traditional school where the standards and belief in kids is really high than a progressive school where expectations for kids are really low. Mm -hmm. For me, the, the, the guiding light is not progressive or traditional, it's quality. It's what's the quality of work and quality of thinking and quality of human beings we're creating. So are kids doing high quality work? Are they in high quality conversations and discourse? And are they becoming good quality human beings? That is the key. And if they are coming out of a traditional heritage and the school is producing that, I would champion that school. If they're coming out of a progressive heritage and doing that, I would. So that's more my focus. The reason that I, I lean more into progressive is that Traditional education, unless you're a gifted educator, puts a very low ceiling on students' ability to actually do work that matters. So in the United States, and I, I would guess this is probably equally true in the UK, traditional education has become reductionist in pre preparation for exams. And so the actual depth of work, the kinds of reports and essays and stories and poems and scientific experiments and historical studies that kids are doing is pretty minimal because really it's exam prep. And when traditional education gets reduced to exam preparation, then it's a very low ceiling for kids because they're never being challenged to do something deep and powerful in the profession, in the field that they're working in. Project-based learning gives kids the opportunity to do real scientific research, real historical research, journalistic work, literary work, artistic work. And so there's a great potential in progressive education to reach a much higher, more sophisticated level of rigor and quality, but it's not often realized. And so that's why when someone say it's a project-based school, I don't immediately think, great. I immediately think, okay, I hope it's a good one. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. And when we were speaking last week, when we when we touched upon this, you sort of said, yeah, both traditionalists and progressives are sort of barking at the wrong tree when they're not focusing in on on quality. And you, and it, it's a really penny drop. 
bit of a penny drop moment that, that comes early on in the book where you say that the vast majority of schools and the whole school system is essentially predicated on quantity and just covering as much ground. And, and I, I speak to teachers all the time who, who talk about the problem there in both primary and secondary in this country, certainly, that there's just so much stuff to get through. And that was definitely my experience as a as a science teacher. I often used to describe the curriculum as like an ocean of knowledge that's about an inch deep. They just have to know two or three things enough to ask a two or three answer a two or three point question on a on a test. You need to know a few things about about you know plant cells and a few things about electromagnets and a few things about whatever something about the periodic table. But there's no depth to any of it, and therefore the, the sort of the really deep rooted interest that somebody can get when they when they when they immerse themselves in in a subject doesn't get the chance to take root. And so, so when did that penny drop for you, the quality versus quantity thing? I, I, I know, so I keep coming back to this when question, but I'm, I'm really interested yeah. to, to know when that was. And was, was that the sort of the defining moment that made you realize that that was what you needed to focus on? We need to really slim down the quantity and go deep. Well, I was very fortunate, James, that in 76, and um, between 76 and 80, I worked in a number of different schools with other teachers who pushed students hard, they really valued high quality student work. And they took student thinking seriously. They took student potential seriously. Mm. And they were progressive. They were not exam focused schools. And they were also producing pretty high quality work, giving kids the power to do real research at young ages. So that is the tradition I entered right away. It took me a good five years to be good at it though, I would say. And I would say maybe by the early 80s, I was keeping portfolios of student work that were, the students were keeping their own portfolios of work that was really high quality. And um, a, a, a cusp point for me, an inflection point, James, was there, is, there were two American educators, both in the progressive heritage again, uh, Ted Sizer and uh, Deborah Meyer, who together sort of forged this idea of graduation by presentation or by exhibition, they called it, mm -hmm. which is instead of just passing exams to graduate from a school, students should be collecting portfolios of their academic and artistic work and formally presenting those portfolios of work, sort of like a thesis defense to a panel of people from the school in order to graduate. Yeah. And and Ted Sizer sort of had the idea of exhibitions, and Debbie Meyer was the leader of schools in New York City working with low-income students who manifest that in that her actual school, brought it to life. And so I was privileged with going to see students from Central Park East High School, Debbie Meyer's high school in New York City, present for hours. I mean, there, there was like 15 hours of student presentations of their work in mathematics, their work in science, their work in history, their work in English, and defending their thinking and their work as if they were graduate students. And these were low-income first-generation high school students from New York City who were speaking like graduate students and, and reflecting on their work in such deep ways. And I realized formal presentations of thinking and work were a way to create a strong engine for quality in all the projects or assignments that kids did. And so in the early 80s, I began 
requiring all of my students to formally present the body of their work to a panel of community members and experts in order to graduate from my school as uh, sixth graders, which would be year sevens for those of you in the UK. And for the those those happened every year. And the entire year was preparation for is your work good enough to share with this panel? So it created this leverage for quality that I think made a really big difference. And that hit in the early 80s for me. And those I have not been teaching in that particular school for 20 years. But those end of year present portfolio presentations of work have never stopped. They they have gone on for 40 years because the community goes to those uh, because it's such a big event to see students not just walk across the stage and get a diploma, but see students explain and share their thinking and their work to the community in a powerful way. It's it's a really powerful thing to visit at at the school. Absolutely, it's infectious, isn't it? And it and it like you say, it's meaningful. You know, like it's perfectly possible for a kid who just is naturally adept at picking up concepts to breeze through their exams and to get what looks on paper to be a really impressive set of results, but they haven't really had to to, to push themselves, and it probably doesn't really mean particularly much to them that they were able to do that. But the the meaning and the pride that comes through when you when you when you have kids to present their work in that way, it's a totally different game to be playing, isn't it? And th- there's a phrase that you use towards the end of the book, and it's it really struck out at me because it's something that I think about often as well. Like in recent years, in 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 England certainly, but I think that this is reflected in what's happening elsewhere. So I know certain voices in the states are banging the same drum. There was quite a sort of quite a lot of focus on skills, like generic skills, say, about sort of 20, 25 years ago, uh, under the, the the last Labour administration. There was lots of focus on skills. When I was a science teacher, there was all about like how science works, and it was this sort of generic idea of how to apply the scientific method. And what people have sort of come to realize in they really started to take root in this country about 10 years or so ago. People started talking a lot about people like E.D. Hirsch, uh, the, the importance of knowledge and Daniel Willingham and recognizing that that knowledge is the stuff that you think with, you know, and that you um, that you need to to know a lot of stuff, essentially. And that, that's the justification for this very sort of traditional approach where you break everything down into bite sized pieces. There's huge amounts of work uh, now done around this idea of retrieval practice where you're just continually testing and retesting the kids in a low stakes way to make sure that the, the stuff that they've learned in the in the previous months and years remains fresh in their minds so that that's the you know so that that's the stuff that they can think with and i think that there's there's been some really interesting and useful work done in this area but you there's this phrase in the book that you use that, that so so you were talk you were describing being at this conference where you'd shared you'd shared some of this portfolio work and people were going oh my goodness this is amazing you said that they were mainly business people at this conference and you said that you admired their mission and their zeal and you empathized with their impatience that we want to improve outcomes especially in urban schools for disadvantaged young people but you said their notion of education was to put material into kids heads and that seems to be 
that that seems to be the same game that that all of this sort of neo traditional retrieval practice stuff is all about. It's all about like the seeing education as a process of transferring bits of information from a curriculum, from a textbook, from the teacher's head into the child's long term memory. And then all will be well if that's if you know if we're able to play that game well. That's that's what good education looks like. But you you followed that up in the book by saying there was no discussion about students constructing understanding and meaning, making discoveries, thinking critically, and so on. Um, and and so sorry. Go you go on to say no one pointed out that in the top ranking schools, much of the curriculum centers on developing the skills needed. Uh, to obtain high-level jobs, jobs, skills beyond memorization. Um, and so I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this, because early on in the book as well, you said, you, 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 you say, um, you know, testing children constantly doesn't make them smarter. But the traditionalists would say it absolutely does, because that's the way that we make sure that they're secure in the, in the knowledge base that they need in order to think creatively or critically. What would what would be your answer to that sort of critique of progressivism, if you like? Sure. Well, I, again, I feel like it's a false dichotomy to feel that content-rich learning is traditional and not progressive. Uh, when when you think of E.D. Hirsch, he's absolutely thought of in the traditionalist camp, mm. not in the progressive camp, and his work is critiqued for being too fact-based and also critiqued for being very white and male in its what's the the canon that we have to have every kid learn yeah. those critiques are are valid i think i i try to be a progressive but i'm a white male if i were to create the canon that every kid had to learn it would still be too white and too male even though i would try not to be and so I think it's true that when we think what's the what's the essential content for every kid to learn, we don't just want one old white guy like me to come up with it. We need a much more diverse group of people deciding what are the really most important concepts and facts and frameworks of the disciplines that kids should get historically, scientifically. But the concept that that learning should be content rich, that kids should become experts in content to me, should not be the purview of traditionalists. I'm a progressive, and I absolutely believe in that. And I think there's a lot of merit in, in Ed Hirsch's push for getting kids to be more content deep and more content rich in their learning. It's not just processes. They're learning content, and that matters. I also feel like retrieval practice is something that I'm not critical of. I think there's been a lot of scientific learning about how kids remember things and when and adults how we all learn and remember things and how we forget things. And retrieval practice has been a really useful scientific look at what are the practices all of us could use to learn, get things embedded in our memories and to retrieve them from our memories. But, but all the new learning and retrieval practice, which I think is great. I mean, I follow Kate Jones, the Welsh educator who writes a lot of books about retrieval practice. I'm a big fan of her work. Mm -hmm. I, I think... All that work in retrieval practice could be used in a very low standards, low expectation classroom to just focus on low level memorization, or that work could be put in service of much more demanding, sophisticated intellectual work in a great classroom. 
So I wouldn't dismiss retrieval practice. I would just say it should be put in service of richer, deeper learning. So when I visit classrooms, one of the things that I look for is what are the kinds of questions the teacher is asking of her students or his students or their students. And I'm sorry to say this, but most classrooms, and this is true in traditional categorized schools and progressive categorized schools, most questions are lowest level recall questions. Yeah. Remember what we said yesterday, and this is called, and you remember the person who started that was named, and you like all of it is just recall, recall, recall. It, it, recall and memorization of facts is important. And it's very limited if that's where we stay. Kids should be having to explain their thinking. They need to go up the taxonomy of complexity and be analyzing and synthesizing and building on and critic critically thinking about ideas and their ideas and each other's ideas and making use of it and applying those ideas. The, the kind of discourse in classrooms is the best indicator for me of the sophistication of learning in that classroom. And if a classroom is all low-level memorization discourse, and it's all teacher to student, right back to teacher with no students interacting with each other and grappling with each other's ideas, then there's not a lot of rich learning going on. Thank you for that. I think that you just very eloquently resolved uh, the the whole <laughs> the whole de debate that's been raging in this country for the last ten years or so. Um, Thank you. That's that's a very very strong answer, um, and and again, I think it comes back to quality. And and so 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 let's get into culture. So 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 in an ethic of excellence, for anyone, if anyone hasn't read this this book, which you can read very quickly, you can see it's not it's not hugely thick, but my goodness, it's got a lifetime of wisdom in it. Um, so so there's there are three toolkits that you talk about toolboxes, and the first one is culture, um, and Let's, so I'd like to I'd like to start there. Why is it that you start with culture in in the book? Why is it, why is this so important? Would you say? Well, I actually had a a very slim book that came out before Ethic of Excellence came out in the '90s called A Culture of Quality, and I think. And that was published by a foundation in the U.S. Now it's published by Yale Education, the, the nonprofit that I work for. I think a culture is the key to a school. There's no magic fix to making a school better. People think if we just did this, the school could be great. If we just did that, the school could be great. You know, longer days, shorter days, Saturday work, more of this, more retrieval practice, more project-based learning. I don't care if the quick fix is from the progressive tradition or from the traditionalist tradition, or from the new scientific tradition, it doesn't matter. There is no quick fix. It's the culture of a school that determines the quality of learning in the building. And if it's a culture of high standards and a culture of continuous improvement and continuous learning, if the teachers are always learning and the teachers are always getting better, if the teachers are dedicated to becoming better human beings and being inclusive of all staff members, that's what the kids will grow up with. So if the kids grow up in a community where you're expected to be a good person, where you're expected to be tolerant and supportive of all others, regardless of their backgrounds, where you're expected to be respectful, responsible, courageous, compassionate, if you grow up in that environment, that's who you want to be. 
it, it shapes who you are. If you grow up in a high standards academic environment where you're expected to speak eloquently and thoughtfully and deeply about your ideas and defend your ideas and relate to the ideas of others and critique the ideas of others and build off the ideas of others, that's the way you learn to be. I, I think all of us want to fit in in the cultures that we're in. And so if we want to make a better school, it's about making the school culture a culture of higher standards for academics and higher standards for behavior and character of who we are. That's the only way to do it. There's no one tool or trick that will make a school good. And there's no easy way to make a culture better. It's a, it's a constant commitment to quality and to continuous improvement. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. I mean, it's, 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 you make a very strong point. And, and I think that a few times in the book, you talk about how people have said to you, this is unbelievable. Like, how can, how can these kids produce work of such high quality? And your answer is often, they've, that's all they've known since they were like four years old. This is all they've known. Guy Claxton has this lovely phrase where he says that whatever the culture is in a place, the children will grow towards it like plants towards the light, right? That, like, right. That, that, and you talk in the book about positive peer pressure. If you can, and, it, and it's absolutely critical, isn't it? I know that, you know, I know of many schools where the, there's an anti-learning culture, like the way that you fit in is that you put your hood up, you're sullen, you, you turn right. low quality work, and that's how you that's how you get kudos from your friends and how to flip that switch so that so that it becomes cool to to try hard so that it becomes cool to take risks and to make mistakes i mean it's this maybe the million dollar question isn't it because that's that's there are so many schools in that former category and i know that you write in this section and and you, indeed you just said it that, that there's no single there's no silver bullet solution to this. You talk about beautiful work is often the sort of the North Star. Um, but if you if you say to everybody, right, we're going to do beautiful work, but where there is a culture of disrespect, where there's a culture of lateness, where there's a culture of, of um, whatever willful disobedient behavior and so on, just, just simply saying, right, everyone, we need to make beautiful work is not going to flip that switch. And so this is a difficult question now, but but where, so so you you write um, early on in that in that section to build a new culture, a new ethic, you need to begin somewhere. Um, the particular spark that I try to share as a catalyst is is this passion for beautiful work, but that's not going to work everywhere. And so if you were to be, I don't know, you've we've worked in many very challenging schools in difficult circumstances. What would you say if, if there's anybody listening to this who works in a school where there is this hoods up culture of not trying, it's cool to not try, where do you begin that process of turning this thing around? It's a great question. So first, I would say there are two, two kinds of school cultures that are a real poverty of expectation. And one of them we we all think about, which is schools for low income students where resources are poor, teachers are not paid well, the buildings don't look great, there's a lack of spirit of positivity and belief in the kids, and teachers are often dispirited themselves. And so there is an attitude often in the culture of these kids couldn't do sophisticated and really high-level work. They, there's no way they could do beautiful work. And the kids pick that up and they live into that. They put their hoods up and they 
shut down and they feel like I don't want to care about school. School is not the place where I shine. But there's a there's a second kind of poverty culture around human character that I see in the most financially privileged of schools. So if you go to, in the U.S. at least, if you go to the elite private schools where the richest people in our country send their students, their children, you're delighted by the fact that there are beautiful buildings and gymnasiums and art studios and orchestras and theaters and all the reasons why, you know, all the people that's, that that feel like schools, the, the physical building shouldn't matter, but they send their kids to these beautiful university campus looking schools where kids have lots of options and choices and where the level of discourse in the classrooms and student project work is often much better than in other schools. Kids, the the expectations are higher academically. And when I visit those places, I'm very appreciative of the academic rigor and the academic push on kids and the access to arts and expression. So they're great schools in many ways. But those schools have a different kind of poverty, which is the kids in those schools tend to be competitive, sarcastic, mean to each other, and exclusive of kids who don't fit in, who are different in any way from their cultural traditions in in really tough ways. And I feel like it's just as saddening to me to see a school where kids are mean to each other which I see in those schools often Mm. than it is to see a place where kids are academically struggling. Because in each case, the the expectations are way too low. In one case, the expectations are for engagement and academic rigor. And in the other case, the expectations are low for kindness, tolerance, compassion, inclusion, of really making sure that every kid feels like they can fit in. And so in in both cases, we have to work hard to make schools have high expectations for kids academically and high expectations for their character as human beings, that they're going to be good people in the world and treat everyone else well, not just people from their social group. But I'm sorry, that was a long aside. Your question is like, where do you begin? I I, I think it's best handled with a particular story. So... I was a part of the founding of EL Education 30 years ago. And one of the first schools that we worked with in the United States was, and I don't know what you'd call this in in Britain, but it was a secondary school for the kids who got kicked out of all the other secondary schools. Yeah, I know. So I'm sure they have these in Britain. Yeah. And, And this one was called an alternative high school. It was in the middle of the country. It was in Dubuque, Iowa. And it was the high school for the kids who flunked out of other schools because they weren't showing up and their attitudes were so bad. These were kids who were not, at the moment, intrinsically motivated to try hard at school. Part of the state requirements in history was that students at that time, and this was in the 90s, were supposed to study World War II. And for these kids, it was like, that's a war that happened 50 years ago, and I have no interest in it, and I don't care, and it has no bearing on my life. So why would I ever study it, even though it's in the state frameworks? But the approach that the teachers in this school used 
was really different than it, and it was a progressive approach. So this is where progressive education can really shine. They said, we're going to create a book about the World War II veterans of Dubuque, Iowa. These are men and women who served in the war, but nobody knows who they are. No one's ever interviewed them. Their stories have never been told. They're heroes for not only America, but for the free world. And they're not going to be alive that much longer. So if we don't tell their stories, their stories will disappear forever. Mm -hmm. So you are going to become interviewers to interview them. And we're going to actually publish a book and give it out throughout the city to honor all the veterans of the war. And the kids' attitude at first was, are you crazy? We're the bad kids. Like, we don't know how to write. We don't know how to read. We're, like, you should, you have picked the wrong group of kids to entrust with this if this is important. And the teachers said, yeah, we know you feel that way, but we actually believe in you. But we're not going to get you out there interviewing people until we've supported you first. So first, we're bringing in some newspaper reporters to teach you how to interview. And we're going to do practice interviews. And we're going to learn how to use interview. And when somebody gives you a short answer, we'll learn how to draw them out. We'll learn how to take notes. We'll learn how to do this. You'll learn a skill. And we're going to study World War II history so that when you go in and meet your veteran and she's telling stories of fighting in Europe in World War II, you're not going to think, I have no idea what you're talking about. You're going to know your history ahead of time. And we're going to practice this. And we're going to, the writing teacher is going to help us make sure we know how to shape those into narratives and the photography teacher is going to help us take pictures of people. And we're, you know, and the kids were cynical at first and skeptical at first. But after weeks and weeks of practice, they actually went out there and met with their World War II veteran. And it was emotional and powerful because these veterans brought up their photo albums and their medals and their stories. And the kids felt like, oh my God. No one's ever heard this except for their family and me, or maybe someone at the pub, right? Like at the local bar, VFW bar, we would call them in the US. And they went again and again. And over that time, those kids changed because they built a relationship with a, an older person and they were in charge of something really important and they cared about getting the story right, not to get a good grade, but because they would dishonor the veteran if they didn't write it well. And eventually they published this book of World War II stories and it was commercially published. So it looks beautiful. And the kids work, it's all the kids work. And at the back of the book, they have the stories of the kids themselves and their personal transformation. This is who I was when I started writing. This is who I've become since I helped publish this book. And so that's a long aside. But the answer is, if kids are not engaged, give them something meaningful to do that they have to work their butts off to do. Not meaningful and easy and fun, meaningful and hard, that where they have to use their skills and improve their skills to do it well, believe in them, and then push them to do something that's harder than they think they can do. Um, to use, I mean, my organization comes from Outward Bound, part of our roots. And it's the metaphor of like, it's not an easy to, thing to climb the mountain, but you feel proud when you're at the top of it. So give them a, a meaningful, even if it's a small project, uh, something meaningful and hard that connects their skills to a contribution. 
What a fantastic answer. Absolutely love that. Um, yeah, I just I just wrote down learning that matters, like the, the, this idea of authentic outcomes. And you can see how how quickly that could like like when they really realize that you mean it, like like you say at first they're sort of it's almost like the hero's journey, isn't it? There's a call to adventure. At first they turn it down, they say, You've picked the wrong kids, this is not us. The the the, the person who called them to that adventure says, No, no, really, it's you. <laughs> And then they rise to that challenge. It's a beautiful thing. And there's, there's a great line in, um, in, we're tipping into the second part of the book now, the, the, the second toolbox, Work of Excellence, where you say, um, it may sound obvious, but the first step in encouraging high quality student work is to have assignments that inspire and challenge. There's only so much care and creativity that a student can put into filling in the blanks on a worksheet. Um, and it seems so obvious when you when you say it like that, don't doesn't it? And and yet, you know, our our the, the, the classrooms of the planet are filled with with worksheets. Um, and and there are there are lots of really rich real world um, stories in the book. Um, the, the deaf the deaf study the study of, of, of uh, deaf community is an amazing one that you cite as being the, the one that 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 sort of. That you hold up as being one of the most amazing things that you ever took part in. Um, I thoroughly recommend if people aren't familiar with that um, to to immerse themselves in it. And you know, you also had students doing things, didn't you? Like um, like collecting, sampling the water supply to see whether there are any he heavy metals in in people's water. And you talk about how you know there was tears in their eyes when they sampled the, the water supply from some family and they found that there were that there were exceeding levels of lead or whatever it was in their water and they were like these kids are drinking water that could be you know making them ill and it really mattered and there was, there was another another one about radon i'm not sure what what's the deal with radon where where, where why was radon leaking all around your community sure so it's interesting uh James, we we did uh, test my my students who were fifth and sixth graders, so six uh, year six year seven students. Um, we did test the homes in my rural community for radon gas, um, at, as well as we tested their water for their wells to see if there were metals or other con dangerous contaminants. Radon is a naturally occurring gas from radioactive breakdown in the bedrock happens all over the world, and it leaks through the ground into people's homes, and it's a, it's a carcinogen. So when that radon gas is in your home, you don't know it. It doesn't smell, it doesn't look like anything. It's tasteless, odorless, invisible. Mm. But in the United States, and I don't know about the UK, but in the United States, it's the second leading cause of lung cancer. Wow. Smoking is number one, radon gas is number two. But most people don't know if they have radon gas in their home. So we collaborated, my uh, young students collaborated with college students to run uh, testing equipment at the university for radon gas. And we tested everyone's homes in town to see, is everyone's home safe? And we actually found 14 homes with unsafe levels of radon where people were uh, had a high risk of getting lung cancer. And so you can imagine that those kids took science seriously in a way that I never did growing up. Mm. They, they not only learned how to use uh, professional testing equipment in a university, but they learned scientific method and experimental technique. They learned how to use create databases 
on a computer to, to manipulate computer spreadsheets. They learn how to produce a professional report. They learn scientific ethics. Like they, they took the science seriously because people's lives depended on it. It was a very powerful uh, experience. I mean, one of those students I spoke to recently, he's a doctor now. And he talks about that point in his life when he was doing that research is what made him go into the medical profession and 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 have a love of science and and service being combined. Mm. That's yeah, it's something else, isn't it? And I remember that there's some point in the book that somebody had said, like, are you not concerned that you know, like these kids are doing this work that's so important? And you were like, Honestly, they've they've triple checked. They are so they are so concerned that they have to get this right that I actually I'm not I'm not worrying about it because they they have you know raised the bar themselves because they know how important this is. They can't afford to get this wrong because it's so important. Um, and there's something else just before we go into that second toolbox that you talk about work of work of excellence. And I want to I want to talk about project based learning in particular. Um, but there's something else that's really at the heart of what you're talking about, and, it, and it's to do with that idea of the, the of, of, the, of fitting in, and uh, essentially building community and relationships. And you you say that every day um, at your school would start with a with a community meeting, with a circle meeting. Um, yeah. I would, I'd love I'd love to hear about that. Why why would they begin in that way? And I know that that's that's central to the idea of crew now, isn't it? That started to spread. For the schools, which is amazing, but so so, what's with the what's with the circle meeting to start the day? Yeah, the uh, in Yale education we use the word crew for that, and uh, prior to the El education's existence, there was a tradition that I learned from uh, the responsive classroom tradition in the United States, which used a structure called morning meeting for younger students, which was circling up every day. And it's a way to, it's the same reason that on a football pitch or in a basketball game, people huddle up. In athletics or in theater, there's a tradition of circling up before you go on stage, before you go out on the field. Yeah. That's what this is. This is, it is getting ourselves in the same teamwork frame of mind of our intention to be our best selves. I mean, why does a football club in the UK huddle up in a circle right before they run on? Why do, why does the cast of a play circle up for right before they go on stage? It's, they circle up because they want to all look at each other and commit to the intention to be their best selves as a team. And that's what the morning crew meeting or the morning meeting is about. It's about circling up to, to be in a shared mission, to push each other and collaborate with each other to be our best selves and to succeed together today. Now, in the structure of crew and in my morning meetings and my teaching, it goes way beyond that to being the place where you actually grapple with the disconnect between our best intentions and how we're actually doing. It's the place where we critique. Are we learning enough? How are we all doing? Are we being inclusive enough? Where we go around and we check in on everybody. How is everyone doing? Everyone, every single kid in the class checks in to uh, how are they coming today? Are they all right today? And if a student comes in and she or he or they are struggling that day, we know it. We know to look out for them. 
So it's truly a check-in. It's the place where you have courageous conversations about everyone's physical health, social health, mental health, emotional health, about whether their families are okay. If kids' families are struggling and they're off, this is where we find out in that morning meeting before kids fall apart. Is like we know this person's having a hard day and this is why their family is falling apart. They lost their grandmother. Their brother has a drug problem. There was a police raid at their house. Like something happened that was traumatic for them. They're coming in in a really tough frame of mind today. Um, we need to work with them, take care of them, help them. It's also the place where we check in on our academics. How are we all doing academically? So no one's anonymous. And if someone's struggling, what are we going to do to help you? If you're struggling academically. So it's it's the the time of day where we're reflective about what are our goals for being our best and healthiest selves, and where we try to support and push each other to be our best selves, rather than just getting right into the learning without that reflective moment. Yeah, it's so powerful that, isn't it? Um, the, just to just to summarize, yeah, there's a bit where um, you write uh, in the morning meetings. Children are given a chance to share from their home life if there are joyful or tragic stories from home. Morning meeting is a safe environment for students to let their peers and their teacher know about them. Um, and you were talking there about about how they can show up as their best self. But what that's also about is showing up as your authentic self, isn't it? It's like saying like this is who I am as a as a person. And you're being respected and, and acknowledged as a as a as an individual person, um, and that the, the, there's not very much space for that in this in this very overcrowded, top-down sort of micromanaged world um, of of mainstream schools. That often doesn't happen. And I keep coming back about three or four times in the last week or so. The importance of of showing up as your authentic self is to, to be able to be to be rec recognized. For who you are what one of the first problems sorry one of the first projects that i used to work on i also was was involved in a in a it was a it was sort of like a little um progressive um curriculum that was within a traditional mainstream system um called the learning skills curriculum and we had 20 percent of curriculum time and we had lots of projects and I, I really wish that i'd read your book like when it first came out because we made some of the rookie errors with regards to project-based learning that that um, that you go on to describe in the book, but one of them was really good. And the first one that we did, and it was the Who Am I project, and they just had six weeks to answer that question in as many ways as they could, and so they were they were just yeah just getting really into thinking about who they are, and I think that there's often a bit of an identity crisis as you go from primary to secondary school primary school where you're known to all of a sudden being one of a thousand kids all wearing the same uniform and everyone's there's this conformity of behavior and I think there's a bit of like who am I in 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 this big machine-like organization what's different about me and also you know kids don't want to be different do they they don't want to be seen to be to be different to their peers because fitting in is how you how you can stay safe and um, but the who am I project was a wonderful thing and really enabled a for them to be rooted in their own identity and to share that and to be proud of it but also for the kids to learn a great deal about one another as well as for the teachers to learn a lot about their about their students um and and that is so important isn't it and it's something that that i would love to see spreading 
far more widely around around the system that just give creating a little bit of time recently i worked with a school in south africa we just we just trained their 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 staff remotely in how to develop one of these it's now called the learning skills curriculum and it was so emotional hearing the teachers relaying the impact that this had had on their students in a really short space of time kids who were turning up who would never make eye contact with a teacher who wouldn't speak to their teachers all kinds of social problems going on in those schools and they were talking about these kids you know handing in pieces of work with pride but what really was was different was the fact that the kids felt like they had this space that they had some ownership over and they, 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 the school counselor said that they started to disclose things in this in the in the space in the, what they deemed to be the safe space of, the, of this learning skills curriculum time that they wouldn't disclose in a one-to-one meeting with the counselor but they, they felt like this was this was theirs and 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 once you feel safe and acknowledged and you feel connected to other people then all of this other cool stuff can happen can't it but that that really seems to be a cornerstone so maybe alongside i guess crew and that sort of like the morning meeting showing up as your authentic self combined with learning that matters it seems that we have the the bare bones of a of a transformational system here yeah i think both are important uh, the the project you just described about letting kids explore and affirm their identities and appreciate each other's identities is super important in a secondary setting. Absolutely agree with you. And I, I think, unfortunately, we tend to be very impatient and short-sighted in thinking many schools feel like there's too much academic content to get into. When would we ever have the time to have kids be able to connect and reflect and feel like they belong? No, we have to cover too much mathematics and history and science and, and English cr- curriculum. Meanwhile, those schools are are having kids that are failing and leaving and flunking out and kids that are disengaged who are doing low quality work and kids that are under challenged, even if they care. And I think, of course, you need to slow down and reflect and check in that there are a number of secondary schools, James, in our EL education network that work with low-income students whose parents did not attend university or college, and they're getting 100% of their graduates into university every year. And if you ask those kids why, they'll say crew. And by crew, they mean we meet every day in a small family group where my crewmates and my crew leader, my advisor, are keeping me on point. And I'm not anonymous, as you said, I'm not one in a 1000 kids, I am one of a 12 person crew. And we've been together for years. And that crew is my family. And when I start struggling academically, or emotionally, or socially, or struggling with my mental health or poor choices, my family kicks my butt, like, they keep me accountable to be my best self and to succeed. I never would have gotten to graduation without my crew. I never would have gotten into university without my crew. And people will say, the other, the other secondary schools are losing kids. They're excluding them. They're dropping out. They're not making it a graduation. Why is your school, the school in your EL education network, getting every kid to succeed? And the answer is, it's both, but it it comes down of both the work that matters and the crew culture. But it, 
But the most powerful thing is that these kids are not anonymous, that they are known and cared about and loved and pushed hard, that they're part of a small family group at school, their crew that keeps them on track when they start to drift. Yeah. Amazing, isn't it? And and so simple as well to implement that. Like it's not hard to implement crew to to figure out how to, you know, like I think that this the 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 the, the number you mentioned 12 there, and I know that that's what they've tried to replicate at XP school. Um, and sometimes that might involve giving giving a crew to to you know members of the support team to members of the the site staff, you know, just figuring out creative ways to keep the numbers down. And people often might say, you know, we don't have time. There's there's so much stuff to get through that we don't have time to do this. But also, you know, there's an interesting thing that not not many schools seem to recognize, which is that you only need five, like we do GCSEs at age 16 when you when you leave school here. You only need five passes to get into to get into college, to get onto the next ladder, if you like, next step of the ladder. But every school does like nine or ten or more or more subjects, and so we're sort of like getting all of this all of this content to go through the kids' minds, and and we could we could just halve it <laughs> and mm-hmm. and give a huge chunk of time to to these other things to to self directed learning to multidisciplinary learning, and we'll we'll, we'll get into that in a moment because I what I, one thing that I love let, let's get into that right now the project based stuff in this in yeah. this next in this next um toolbox of yours work of excellence we definitely made the mistake of just sort of doing individual projects a series of individual projects that weren't particularly linked to other particular to other projects and you talk about there being a supra curriculum which um which would be a multidisciplinary theme and within within that supra curriculum there might be three or four quite sizable projects that would take place over a number of months or maybe even a year or two um, and it seems that you just made did such a good job on the project-based learning front. And you also say that projects don't often have a great reputation in schools. And you say that this poor reputation is often deserved. And so can you could you just draw a distinction, if you will, between the, the common problems that you see in the sort of you talk about the science fair model or the book fair, you know, the, the standard we, we would use slightly different language over here. But the standard projects that get done in schools, what are the common the common pitfalls that you see and how is the EL vision of project based learning different? Yeah, thanks, James. So we have a, a vision of projects at EL and there's other groups in the US and I'm sure in the UK with a similar vision. There's there's a group in in the US called PBL Works, project-based learning works, and that that has a very similar definition of project. There's a network called High Tech High Network that has the same project I vision as we do. There's a, a group called New Tech uh, Network. Also, the, there's many of us in the project-based learning world in the US that has this sense of what PBL Works would call a gold standard project, a, a different vision. And the the big distinction at first is that the project is not the dessert, it's the main course, basically. That the project is not what you get to do when you finish your real learning. Like you get to do, you you have to read these books, you have to write these papers, you have to do this. And then if you happen to get done, you get to do a project. It's not that. It is the project is the vehicle through which you do your core learning. And because of that, 
it means that the project has to be grounded in the very important skills and content that you have to cover and and uncover anyway. And so, I mean, to go back to E.D. Hirsch or all those people who are into content things, it does matter that kids, if there's if there are standards for your country, for your state, for your district, kids have to learn these things. They should be built into the project. The project should be the place where there's a reason to learn those concepts and skills. I mean, I started with that example of the World War II history. If World War II history is your standard, then this, this school built a project where kids had to learn World War II history in service of doing something great. And so you need to look at your, your history standards, your science standards, your mathematics standards, your English standards, your art standards, and see how is the project you're designing going to make sure kids dive into the, that content, not all of it, but some of the most important parts of your standards, and put it to use for something that kids care about. That does mean that your project model can't be every kid does their own thing totally differently, and then they just show up and, and share it. The, the problem with that is that kids can't critique each other's work. The work may not be connected to standards. Kids don't have a model of what high quality looks like in those different genres. And some kids will do high quality work, and other kids will do mediocre work, and some kids won't even finish. And even the kids that do high quality work, if it's extraneous to the school day, you're never sure if their parents did a lot of that or if they did it. Yeah. So it's really different when, when you build a collective project that's based on your content and standards that you have to address, and you work as a team to do a long-term important piece of work, a scientific report, a presentation to the community, an artistic creation, a series of essays or or uh, biographies or poems, you're putting something together for an audience outside the classroom where it matters that you do it well. And you have to get good at those skills and standards in order to do that project. And then along the way, you're assessing it all the time. So you're always assessing. The assessment is not what happens at the end of the project, like everyone brings it into the room and then it gets a ribbon or not. The assessment is every time you're working on parts of your essay, your report, your scientific experiments, you are getting critique from other students, from outside experts, from your teachers, and you're keeping a record of all of those assessments. So the assessment of the, the learning and growth is from the entire process not just from the final product. Yeah. My goodness, I wish that I'd read this book <laughs> when we started doing this because it was a very project-based curriculum. And we did do some good stuff in the projects. But as I look down, so, so, so in the book, you make a list of the, the, the sorts of things that people often get wrong. You were saying like the projects have nothing to do with, the, with, with one another or with the wider curriculum, guilty. They were disconnected from school learning. Arbitrary topic choices were based on whatever materials were lying around. Guilty of that. <laughs> the, the kids didn't have any knowledge of what their peers were working on and therefore had little interest in their final product. That's an interesting one. We were guilty of that. Um, not really having a clear idea as to what a good one looks like. We were making that mistake repeatedly. Um, unclear assessment criteria and so on. And so you were talking, as yeah, and then you talk about the 
essentially what you were just saying that the, the, the classroom is the hub of creation the project workshop even though some of it's done as done as homework like you say this is the meat in the sandwich this is the the beating heart of the curriculum um and you have very clear assessment rubrics which are often co-constructed with the kids we did a bit of that but it wasn't really as tied down as it could have been um and then you have these conference and critique sessions um where student progress is assessed I'd really like to ask you about that because um, that's, again, you know, we often talk about peer assessment, um, which is, you know, the, the sort of the probably the weakest form of, of critique that you that you talk about in the book. Um, but when the kids don't really have a clear idea as to what a good one looks like, when they're not skilled in giving critique, they often just say, oh, you need to try harder. You need to write more, give more detail. But they, they just they're not able. They don't have the vocabulary or the knowledge or the insight to be able to give helpful, helpful feedback. So can you talk to me a bit about critique and also about, cause you talk about critique and conferences. I wasn't really sure what a conference is. Is conference different to an exhibition? Is conference, does that mean something else? Yeah, so um, I'm a big fan of critique, obviously. And I think that there's only so much time that the teacher has to critique her her students' work or his students' work. Mm -hmm. uh, she is an expert in many ways, but her time is really limited if she's got 35 or 100 or 150 students whose work she has to look at. So you, we need to develop cultures in which students are continually critiquing each other's work productively so that we tap into that. Now, a lot of people would say that's idealistic. Students are not going to be listening to each other doing that. But if you look at a, a football club, if you look at the cast of a play, if you look at an orchestra, students are constantly checking with each other, refining each other, pushing each other because they want to win. They want to sound good. They want to have a good play. They're always critiquing each other, always trying to help each other get better at their work because it's a collective win if we all do well. Mm. That's the culture we want is a culture of constant, small critique among students. You're exactly right that that critique is going to be really weak and pretty worthless if kids don't have the concepts and vocabulary of the discipline, of the field, in order to do it well. And so the teacher either has to model that herself or she has to bring in experts. So if kids are doing a literary piece, she brings in poets or, or writers to critique work in front of the kids so they think that's how a professional does critique. If they're, if they're doing a scientific study of the air or the soil, the water in their community, you bring in experts, you bring in scientists who look at the work in draft form and in front of the class critique their scientific method, their data, their data analysis, the presentation of their findings, and kids listen to that scientist and think, ah, I want to talk like she does. Like, that's powerful. The kinds of critiques she's giving, that's what we need to be able to give to each other. They just internalize it. And you as a teacher are keeping vocabulary going. Like you're making vocabulary lists of all the words that she as a scientist uses. So that, that you know, I say in this book that when you are critiquing, your toolkit is your vocabulary. If you're a surgeon, the more, the bigger your vocabulary is, the more surgical tools you have to understand and analyze work. 
if your vocabulary is it's good or i like it uh, it's not very good then it's like trying to do surgery with a cleaver basically you know i mean you don't have delicate tools you need to understand the vocabulary of the field of the profession to critique each other's work well and you can learn that from scientists from historians from writers um and then students become adept at being able to do it with each other. You model it with you as teacher and the students, you model it with outside experts and the students, and then you lean on the students to be leaning into each other, to push each other's, the validity of their data, the way they're presenting their data, the way they're making conclusions from their those data. Like they should have professional standards for that. They should have professional models. They should look at adult level plays and scientific reports and, and essays. I see. And so, so, so just to, just to, to make sure I've got it straight in my mind. So, so in the book, you talk about gallery critique versus in-depth critique. And yes. so it's, it's in-depth when it's the teacher and it's sort of like one-to-one and ga- oh, oh, oh no, no, sorry. I beg your pardon. No, that's different, isn't it? Like in-depth is where there's just one piece of work that's, that's right. shared and, and everybody's looking at it in the round and gallery critique is when you're looking at lots of pieces of work right. simultaneously. And then is conference the thing that you just described where you bring outside experts in to look at what what are really... Conference is when it's one-to-one. So when oh, right. you, okay. uh, you as a teacher or the or outside expert gets to meet individually with kids. So let me use a particular example. One of the, the things I did with students many years was we studied architecture And I had students do blueprints, usually residential blueprints of homes. And so kids had to learn drafting. This was not using a CAD program, not using an online computer-assisted design program, but they had to use uh, drafting equipment and draw to scale blueprints of homes they were designing. And they were highly engaged because they're getting to design a home. I mean, it's very exciting to design a home. And they have to learn standard conventions of how to use architectural tools and drafting tools and how to do things to scale and to code. Doorways have to be the right width. Stairwells have to be the right width. You have to have the right amount of treads on a stairwell, you know, all those kinds of things. We would have architects come in regularly to critique the student work. And all three of those styles of critique would be present. So in a gallery critique, Every student blueprint would be posted around the room and the architect would walk around the room and look at everyone's work and then pause and say, whose work is this? And then give some critique. And then whose work is this? And then give some critique. And the students were wrapped. They they wanted the architect to choose their piece of work. Mm. And, and they listened to the language the architect used, the questions that he or she asked about the work. Um, and... And then they might take one piece of student work, let's take James's design, and let's spend 10 minutes talking about what was James thinking, what's working here, what's not working. And the students are able to see an expert in the field actually dig into the piece. And then if there were time, the kids would go back to their tables with their work and the architect would walk around the room and have individual conferencing. So they would walk to each student and have a minute or two to lean in on every individual student's work and give them some ideas and questions about their work. And the students would work silently, nervously waiting for the architect to lean over their shoulder and and give them individual conference-based critique. 
But the power of having an outside expert come in, not to talk about their life and how they what where they went to university and how much money you make as an architect, but to come in and say, as an expert, I'm going to critique your work and tell you where it's working and not, is a powerful thing. Mm, yeah, I can see that absolutely. And so, yeah, so I think there was a, just a, I think it's just a difference in the way that we maybe use the word conference on this side of the pond. But I understand that now I've yeah. had it before that a conference can just be a one-to-one conversation in the States. We tend to use it to mean like a huge fanfare. Right, right. Yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so essentially you're talking about modeling here, aren't you? About modeling critique exactly. in a really clear one. And, and you talk about the importance of models in the book quite a bit, don't you? And also what I really like is tribute work. This idea of this like, like, doing something that's to a really high standard that's basically just like a faithful replication or reproduction of something that's been really that's been done by somebody else and over here or maybe over there as well though in some schools it would be considered to be copying or cheating or that's somehow just a cheap way of learning but you were talking about the the, the immense value of of tribute work and the importance of, of models more widely yeah I, I think we all learn from models whether you're kids or adults. So if if we as adults, James, you and I wanted to learn something new, a, a musical instrument, a, 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 another language, um, a different form of yoga, a different sport, how would we do it? We would go online and look at videos of people doing it, or we would meet someone in person who's an expert. And basically they'd be our model and we'd be copying. We'd be watching them play online or in person, and we'd be trying to copy their hand position, copy their technique. If someone were just to explain how to play a musical instrument or how to play a sport, it would make no sense to us. We have to see it, and then we try to copy it. That's how we all learn as adults. It's the same way kids would learn, except that we are so obsessed with kids should never copy that we're taking away the most powerful tool they have to learn. Um, We don't give kids a violin and say improvise when they're eight years old or six years old, right? We say, we're gonna show you how to, we're gonna model for you how to hold the violin. We're gonna model for you how to hold the bow. We're gonna model for you how to create a note. We're gonna model. If kids are writing essays, short stories, create scientific papers, they don't know what a good one looks like. We ask them to do it, and then they hand them in, and we critique them, and we mark them up and say they're not good enough. And those kids feel like, I don't know what good enough is. Like, I don't know what a good version of that is. Yeah. And it's yeah. it's equally possible to just start with good versions, either versions done by former students or other students that are great, or versions from the professional world, and and have a conversation. What makes this a good essay? What makes this a good performance? What makes this a good report? And have the kids develop the criteria of quality in that genre and in that field. Then when they're working, they think, this is what I'm aiming for. I mean, when you, it's so refreshing to to speak with you about this stuff, but it also is sort of quite heartbreaking to reflect on the difference between between that, the, the kind of education that you're describing and what so often happens where Kids are asked to do stuff in the absence of a clear model. They hand in something that they sort of know is basically a first draft. They either sort of, you know, get good feedback or they don't. But either way, they, they we quickly move on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And 
uh, you know, uh, uh, not 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 in very great depth. And and the the way that this impacts on on young people, you know, like like in this country, we talk a lot about the the forgotten third, right? So that like one in three one in three young people leave school essentially branded a failure because they, they they don't pass one in three kids doesn't pass English or math and they have to they have to resit it and not very many of them pass at the resit in the in the book you talk about the bottom half of the bell curve okay. you know it's not fun it's not fun being in that bottom end of the bell curve um but you were talking that that, that chapter this second section of the book ends you were saying that you were at a, a checkout in a grocery store where the mother of one of the students who'd worked on the water project I think it was um, said uh, that her son would never be the same. No matter how many tests tell him he's stupid, he knows he's not. He did that work. He knows that he's capable of excellence. And that's just like a another penny-dropping moment. Like that is the antidote to this forgotten third problem. We recognize that we're not all going to, you know, like statistically we can't all be above average, right? We, but you're always going to fall somewhere along that bell curve. And some people are really good at surfing and some people are really good at juggling and some people are really good at balancing equations and everyone, you know, nobody's good at everything, but you don't need to take it personally, but, but people often do. And, and it seems that that, that, that sort of core self-belief that, that you develop when you have that the, the, right at the start of this, of this chapter, I think you talk about, let me just scroll back up. Um, self-esteem from accomplishments, not from compliments, right? That you can't just tell somebody that they're brilliant and that they're clever and that that's good, that all will be well. Like they have to believe it. And the way that they believe it is to get authentic feedback from something that they've done and taken pride in and that there's been, that's been validated. And that's the antidote to that sort of forgotten third syndrome. Right. People leave school feeling like failures. Like if you can leave school having not done very well in tests, but still feel like a success because you've had that validating experience. My goodness, that is, that is what we should be doing. Exactly. Every student needs to feel that he or she, or they feel proud of some of the things they've done. It's that pride of having done something really well that they struggled over is what keeps them engaged and keeps them succeeding. And many students feel like I'm proud of some things in my life, but they don't happen at school. Like all the things I'm proud of in my life are not connected to school. There's a lot of students like that. Absolutely. Yeah, right. And and then they stop trying, don't they? Like there's the classic right. thing like self, self-worth theory, is it called? From the 1970s, again, Covington and Beery talked about this, about how you, they stop trying. Because if you don't really try, then you don't really right. fail. You just say, oh, yeah, I didn't, didn't I flunk that test. Right. I, I just don't, don't care. care. About, yeah, I don't care about right. science. And, and it's a way to, to, to shore up their self-image, their self-concept, self-worth. Like if you don't really try, you don't really fail. And then, then we get locked into this unhappy dance where the kids have just got the handbrake on, essentially. They physically sit there in the lesson. Actually, lots of them are voting with their feet in this country. We have 2 million persistent absentees now out of 9 million kids. Post-COVID, kids are voting with their feet because they think that lots of them are waking up to the fact that school isn't making them feel very good about themselves and that maybe, you know, not going is, is a better way to, to, right. to, to shore up that self-worth. Um, th th there's a question that links to this. Before we move on to the third Tool, toolbox, which is that you, you say towards the end of that second section um, that you don't advocate abolishing the use of grades in schools, even though your school 
hasn't used them in 25 years or hadn't at that time and you believed at that time that it had got that the, the non-use of grades at your school had contributed greatly to its effectiveness I, I just wondered why that was like if you felt that not grading kids was so useful and making it all about these real world authentic outcomes that pieces of work that they can be proud in and that anybody glancing at their portfolio will have their socks blown off. I wondered why you wouldn't go so far as to say, actually, grades are probably doing more harm than good here. Well, it's a good question. And most of the time, I think grades are doing more harm than good. They Most of the time, because we're grading every individual piece of work and every individual quiz and assessment that kids are doing, kids get labeled by those grades and then they just stop trying if they're in the lower half. If they just don't succeed regularly, they just figure school's not a place where I succeed. And they focus on the grade rather than on the what could I learn more or what could I do better? So if you go into many traditional schools and you say, do you have work you're proud of? All kids will pull out as work to say, I got a 93 on this. I got an A on this. Like that. Yeah. It's nothing about the work. It's it's the external grade that makes them say I'm proud. It's not anything intrinsic to the work itself. So I think most of the time grades end up as sort of a carrot and stick, a reward system, a punishment system for kids that just makes them care less about the real qualities in the work and care only about the external validation of, of their work. But I do think it's it's difficult to abolish it entirely in some settings. The main reason grades are used is to rank kids. And there are times when we need to rank kids for different purposes that hopefully they'd be more than a reductionist single grade, but that we would need some assessment, some summative assessment systems. It's just that most assessments should be formative. Most should be in purpose of learning. Only occasionally do we need summative assessments, I think. And we make almost every assessment in school summative rather than formative, which I think is a great mistake. Because the formative assessments are keep us engaged in learning and getting better. And the summative assessments not only label us, but they often take the spirit out of us. Even if you're a strong learner, you end up becoming narrowly focused on getting good validations rather than on producing great work mm. or asking hard questions of yourself. Totally. Yeah. There, there, there was a really good, um, did you hear there was a monk debate with Thomas Gusky and Alfie Cohn uh, who were debating um, whether, whether schools should be grading kids or not. It's, yeah. it's, it's really worth a listen. It seems like there's some, I think there's a bit more sophisticated thinking going on on your side of the Atlantic. And there is over here, although there are there are people asking some interesting questions at the moment around assessment. There's this new group that sprung up called Rethinking Assessment, and uh, right. they're looking much more at portfolio stuff and and you know examples of good practice right. in the world. And 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 it's that's really the end of the piece of string, isn't it? Because we we treasure what we measure, as it were. Right. We you right. know so the fact that we, that schools are measured and people's jobs and livelihoods depend on the bottom line of just getting the maximum possible grades out of the maximum number of kids, no matter the cost, which is essentially the game that we're playing at the moment. Um, you know that's what happens because of the assessment system, and if we can figure out how to change the assessment system then we could be playing a different game and treasuring other things, um, which is, you know, a bit more political. And I, th and I think that the third 
the the third section of the book um teaching teaching of excellence is probably also the most political where you talk more about the the way in which so there's a section early on in that um in that section so this is the third toolbox teaching of excellence you said that you you start by saying that you had that year off after after 8 years of teaching uh where you were doing carpentry and you realized a that you wanted to get back to it but also just how hard it is to be a teacher and and, and what a calling it is and there's this whole section called teaching as a calling and you talk about how you know salaries are not high enough that we don't we don't respect the profession the profession enough and that's not reflected um financially and then you say something and this is something bearing in mind this was 20 years ago you wrote um almost half of america's new teachers leave the profession within five years um and then you say that the pay is often terrible is not even the worst part these teachers often struggle in quite isolated settings without support without trust without um a sense of respect and they and they often stop because they feel overwhelmed and soon disheartened this is the worst part as as you as you reflect back on that 20 years later what's the what's the current picture look like in in america with regard to recruitment and retention yeah i i would say i'm so sorry to say this but it's worse now than it was 20 years ago i think from two things um the the pandemic was devastating for teachers and students it was so hard to teach in this time of unclarity of being open being closed being together being not teaching remote teaching with masks on like all of those things were so hard for teachers and there has also been an unhealthy and and deeply unfortunate political strategy of attacking schools and attacking teachers for political gain has become a common thing and so teach respect for teaching as a profession i've never seen it worse than it i feel like it is now and i feel like teachers were attacked in print and in media and at school board meetings and in public settings by politicians by parents for either wanting the students back in person or not wanting the students back in person or asking for masks or not asking for masks. It was like it was a no win for teachers and school leaders because some group of people were going to be angry no matter what they decided during the pandemic. Yeah. And now there's this political backlash in the United States around what is taught and teachers are attacked for teaching too much about this or too much about that and are not being respected professionally it's it's worse than i've ever seen it in my lifetime in terms of lack of respect for the importance and the challenge and of of the teaching of teaching as a profession i'm very sorry to hear that and and also to to reflect that that's very much the the picture on this side of the pond as well the um the 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 speaking ill of teachers there's lots of of you know like articles by um you know reactionary columnists calling them lazy and saying that they had their feet up throughout the pandemic when teachers were actually on their knees you know it was so hard um teaching from home teaching remotely was not fun at all 
Um, and and since then, you know, I mean, the, the figures on on recruitment and retention are through the floor. We're a long way below the government's targets for recruiting new teachers into the profession, and it's a really hard ship to turn around that one because you know, I mean, so so, so in the book, you you write, you you say teachers need to feel respected. They need to feel trusted to plan their curriculum, to try out new ideas, right? To take risks. You're saying that they want to to um, to have work that honors their need for time, for planning, for reflection, for collaboration. They want to feel trusted in their professional expertise and to make decisions around curriculum and instruction and school culture. Um, they want support with challenging children and families that might keep them awake at night. And they want some breathing room from all of the endless layers of bureaucracy um, that, that stop them from, from doing what's best for their, for their students. And, and absolutely, you know, that's not changed, um, but that's, that's clearly not what's happening. Like the opposite of all of those right. things is happening. There's, there's lots of, we were talking about micromanagement of students and their, their every, you know, second is, you know, is pre preordained. Likewise with teachers, you know, they're not trusted to make, to make decisions. You know, there's the use of scripted lessons is sort of seeing a resurgence at the moment um, where teachers are sort of given a thumb drive at the start of the year. And they say like, here are your lesson plans. Here are your PowerPoints. Just do this. And and at the end of that chapter, and it seems so prescient that you were that you were writing this twenty years ago, you said that there are two paths that we can take here. Path A is to make the job highly desirable. Like I'm writing a paper on this at the moment, and the strapline, borrowing slightly from 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 your recent president, is like how can we make teaching desirable again? Right? Like how can we make this an appealing profession again? Because that's the only way we're going to solve that recruitment and retention right. problem. And then you say, um, or path B is forget the good salary, the respect and the good working conditions and so on, and just make it easy to be a teacher, to have low hiring standards, quick certification process, no, inter no internship period, bring people in quickly. And if half of them quit within five years, you can just require, replace them with more cheap labor. And I think that part of I think that part of this drive has been driven by economics that, you know, an experienced teacher, because we have, you know, like pay increments each year. I imagine you have something similar in the States. And so right. a teacher of 20 or 30 years experience is a lot more expensive than a newly qualified teacher. And and if we can create a system that doesn't require that expertise, if we can create a system of just it is all just about transferring material. We'll get them to do lots of retrieval quizzes. They'll perform well in the tests and then they'll have a good education and fall out the other end of the system. And it does feel a lot like we're going down path B, doesn't it? It does. I'm so sorry to say it, but in every way, it, it does feel like both in the UK and in the US, we're going down path B, which is not giving teachers the, the pay they deserve, the respect they deserve, the, the time to collaborate and reflect that they deserve and need, um, we are creating more churn in the profession, more teachers leaving, um, and just hoping to replace them and not worrying about retaining them in the ways that we need to. Um, I, I don't, I, I feel like there are so many district and, and other and building leaders who 
care deeply about retaining teachers and attracting good teachers. It's not for lack of will, but there's it's hard to beat the momentum of society that's devaluing teaching as a profession and politicizing teaching as a profession. It's, it's a pretty challenging time. Yeah, it really is. It really is. I mean, I, I, I do feel hopeful having said all of that. I feel like there's, there's, there's a lot of fight left <laughs> in, in the teaching profession. And there's also a growing awareness among parents and, and carers and among young people themselves. People are switching on to this. And I think that like teachers don't have a political constituency. I think most teachers are of the left politically. I think that it's sort of it's factored in that most teachers, I presume, te like vote democratic in the States. I've not seen the data, but it's, it's certainly the case over here. It's like 80 percent labor or something and so politically they're not a powerful constituency because it's sort of factored into the, the thinking of policymakers that you know teacher like winning the winning the approval of teachers isn't really going to make much of a difference to whether they get elected but parents and carers there's no shortage of them and you know there are like i said two million out of nine million kids in this country are persistent absentees um, and for every kid, there's between one and two or more parents. And that is a huge political constituency. And if, if policymakers wake up to that and realize that actually the well-being of, of, of those young people and their experience of school is of critical importance. Um, and if we can figure out how to how to harness that that political leverage, I think that there's that there's hope. And also just within the teaching profession. There's lots of there's lots of um, of people who are giving up their weekends. You know, like this this podcast has given rise to a really interesting online community. There's about a thousand people in this online community, and we now have these annual conferences and and it's a really lovely sort of coalition of young people, parents, homeschoolers, unschoolers, as well as mainstream educators, alternative educators, traditionalists, and 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 others. Um, and I think that the first thing is coming together so that we can sort of see one another and understand this this problem from multiple perspectives. Because I think that that's part of the problem is that like there's nobody who's really got an oversight over how this plays out for all of these different types of people. And also the, the other big, I, don't, I hesitate to call it a lever because it's such a serious thing, but the other big potential um thing that could be helpful in bringing about change is mental health like the mental health of children and young people and of teachers and school leaders is in terrible shape and everybody knows it you know there's just so much suffering happening not entirely caused by the by the education system directly although i think that you could draw a line in some circumstances but rather that if we had a different system if we had a system for example, that had crew every morning where people felt right. that belonging that we were talking about. That's a quick win. Like that's an easy win. If people can feel connected, like they have a little mini family at school that can, like you say, that can kick their ass if they're making bad decisions and that can hold them to account in a soft, supportive way rather than a sort of a, a shaming way. Um, the, the, I think that there are, there are lots of reasons to be hopeful, um, even though the picture at the moment does look quite bleak in many ways. Um, the, there are lots of people listening to podcasts like this, turning up to Future of Education 
conferences, um, giving of their own time and, and experience freely because they can see that this really matters. And I think that, that COVID, we haven't really come to terms, I don't think yet, with, with what COVID meant for, for educators and for children and young people. In this country, we had this catch-up effort, which essentially just meant cramming ever more English and maths when they got back, which is like, what these kids need is to, is to just be like told that it's okay to practice using their tongues and to actually speak and listen. Like that, that skill has sort of atrophied during that long period of lockdowns. And in many cases, it still hasn't recovered. Um, but um, there is a there does feel to be like an awakening. There's been a few books that have come out recently looking at this from the from the perspective of parents. There's a, a book called uh, Can't Not Won't that came out, Eliza Fricker, which was about she's the parent of a kid who couldn't, not wouldn't go to school. There's many other books like that. The Square Pegs book was one of the biggest selling books on the planet for a while, which was about the square pegs who are falling out of this these round holes. And so it feels like there's an awakening happening, um, which is the first step to, you know, to to realizing that change needs to come. Um, but I do feel I do feel hopeful is what I'm trying to say, despite despite this this difficult picture that we're painting. Well, I, I love your optimism, James. And I think we have to we have to try to be optimistic even during discouraging times like this and, and do the best we can in our settings. I mean, I, I think there are certain professions that to me are truly noble professions. You know, firefighters is a noble profession, healthcare professionals, nurses, doctors, OTs, PTs. That To me, that's a, that kind of service is a noble profession. To me, teaching is just a pure noble profession. I think teaching is a service that's key and we're at this moment where teachers don't feel like society views it as a noble profession. They don't feel like society truly values them and their service. And so it's discouraging. But it, the, as you're saying, it doesn't stop us from creating school cultures where teachers come in and feel valued every day. Like if, if the society isn't giving us this message that teachers work is noble and to be revered and teachers themselves should be treated with great respect and reverence, we can create school cultures where teachers feel respected and supported every day. Because I agree, even more than salaries, that's what's the key for teachers is to feel valued and supported every day, respected for their work. We need to create school cultures through a staff crew, through that kind of spirit where mm -hmm. that's the case. And when you see schools like the schools in our EL Education Network, like the XP trust schools that you visited, when you see schools where teachers do feel valued and respected, they, they, enjoy, they really have a different sense of joy and meaning and purpose in their work. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, 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 so let's wrap up this, this, this bit of the, of the, the, the conversation about, about the book. And um, there's the, the the end of the book. You talk about th this conference that you're at, which we we mentioned briefly earlier, where you were you were um, asked by lots of business people about scaling up. Uh, so you'd shared. You, there's a few times in the book where you talked about uh, arriving at conferences and sharing this amazingly high quality work, like you know architecture standard blueprints drawn by you know like elementary school kids, and people are having their minds blown and they're saying is this are you just cherry picking you know the able kids and then you, you show them the process of drafting and redrafting and 
eventually when people are persuaded that this is real, right, that you're not just sort of yeah. <laughs> trying to pretend like things are better than they really are, um, they were saying, right, how are we going to scale this up? Um, how are we going to find the teachers to do this? What's the training model? What's the business model? How many districts can take this on quickly? How are we going to collect data and all of that stuff, that urgency? And, and your reply was really interesting. And I'd like to just hear your reflections on this again, sort of 20 years on. You, your reply, you said, the implications of my work seem tenuous or even empty if the only paradigm being discussed is scaling up. You say that scaling up works for systems, but not for an ethic that is carefully built over, over time by hand. And then you said that you told this group of people, scaling up is not my goal. Scaling up is what you do when you make a good burger restaurant and then you just end up with a you know chain of chains of identical but fast food restaurants. Which this is useful if you want to make a profit, but you say you don't want to make a profit, you want to spread ideas. Ideas, you say, can proliferate without scaling up and without standardization. Um, and then you say that, for example, when you were when you were a kid, there was not that the diversity of cultures within the US wasn't reflected in restaurants. It was just hot dogs and hamburgers everywhere you went. And now there's tacos and bagels and sushi and, and everything else that would that would that you know were unheard of back then. And then you say these ideas, these practices, these these um behaviors, if you like, weren't scaled up by some sort of central architect. The idea of them just spread everywhere because, because sushi is really good, right? And like good ideas spread. And then you say, so so this is your hope for these ideas that schools can begin to include them. Um, and so I'm, I'm just interested to hear your thoughts on uh, reflecting back on that 20 years down the line. What's your sense? And I know that the EL movement has grown a lot throughout that time. What's your current take on this scaling up question? Yeah, well, a lot of it is still the same, James, in that I do think that ideas like tacos and sushi and all, you know, these things that didn't exist, bagels, they really were not around the around the United States when I was young because they were ethnic. And other than pizza, which was sort of Italian, there was no ethnic foods, a couple Chinese restaurants, you know, that was it. And now any supermarket, any market in America, you can get tacos, you can get sushi, you can get Asian foods, you can get foods from anywhere, basically. And it wasn't that someone created a store for it everywhere. It was that the idea of it spread. And that I think of the ideas and practices that I was trying to share, that EL Education is trying to share, things like having students collect portfolios of their work and present them formally that could go anywhere. Having students lead their own family conferences about their own progress, student-led conferences, that could go anywhere. Um, having students formally critique each other's work and it could, could spread. Using protocols for having class conversations so that every student has a voice, like those things could spread. They don't, they don't need to be cookie-cuttered in particular schools everywhere, the idea of them could make any school better if they're done well. Mm. And I still feel that. I will say a big change for EL education is that we found a new vehicle for sharing work that's helped things spread, which is we created a literacy curriculum. It's an open source literacy curriculum, meaning you can get it for free. You can just download it. And we baked into that curriculum these kinds of 
protocols of students sharing their thinking with each other, students critiquing each other's work, students doing projects that they then share with other people, um, teaching practices where teachers are pushing students not just with recall, but with deeper understanding questions. So we created this free curriculum and built in a lot of those things. And we built in a focus on character. Every lesson has character goals as well as academic goals. And it also has a, a content base in social justice work, which is in the progressive tradition, I have to admit, but it's where, where my heart is, where our heart is in Yale education. It's about social justice, about social good, about environmental justice. Anyway, that curriculum has spread way more than we thought it would. It's being used by maybe a million students right now in the in the US. And there's half a, about a half a million that are directly partnered with us to do professional partnerships around that curriculum. So all of the students in some of the cities of the United States, like Detroit or Oakland or Charlotte or Richmond or Raleigh, are using that curriculum. And many of the students in Boston and New York City are using that curriculum. And so that curriculum becomes an engine for change of classroom style, because when teachers are using it, they're using these protocols. Kids are speaking up. Kids are sharing their work. Kids are critiquing each other's work. Kids are having more voice. They're being pushed deeper. The content is rich and harder than what they're used to. And so it had never occurred to us that building a curriculum that is open source and changeable, customizable by any teacher, because it's not copyrighted, right? It's Creative Commons license. Mm -hmm. So teachers can download things, make adjustments if they wish, use it as they wish, that that could be a container for some of these practices and help just, you know, get them out to more people. And it could also be an engine for changing teacher habits and teacher practice. Because once you use these protocols, you realize this is in my literacy lesson, but my math lesson could be the same. I could have kids sharing their thinking in my math lesson and use some of these same protocols in my math lesson. So I've been delighted to see that this stuff is more spreadable than I realized back then, if we can create the right container for it. And so, for example, we're creating a crew curriculum now that will be often offered open source for people around the country if they want to run crew meetings, they'll have all these set lessons they could draw upon if mm -hmm. they wish. Not mandated to use, but could draw upon if they wish. So that crew curriculum can become a container for that content and those ideas and those practices. So the big change for me in 20 years is we just have a new container for sharing some of that work. I see. I like it. And so people can find these on the EL website, can they? Absolutely. EL Education website. Um, if you just search for EL curriculum, we have a, it's not for all students, but it's kindergarten through eighth grade in the US. So up to year nine students, it's a full on literacy curriculum. And the beauty is that you can download one lesson or a thousand lessons. And you can, you can customize the lessons for your own kids if you choose to, because we went the route of creating a Creative Commons license for it to empower teachers so that you can't get sued if you use the curriculum and change it to fit your students because it's yeah. it's it can be built on and improved on by everyone 
I love it. I've been doing lots of work around implementation science recently, and we talk a lot about tight but loose, you know? Yes. So, so the, the importance of adaptability um, and so that people can feel that they can bring something of themselves to this and adapt things to their context is absolutely key. And, and it's so frustrating because that cookie cutter model, you always hear this word fidelity in implementation science as though, as though which I always just heard of in terms of sound engineering, you know, is to mean like um, just like faithful rep reproduction of the, of the original artist. And this idea that, you know, that, that, that effective education is just about faithfully reproducing what some researcher came up with 20 years ago without any variation across the system that, that this, you know, it's just such a fundamental misunderstanding as to like how human beings work um, and how the, and, and how human beings are motivated to act, you know, in agentic and meaningful ways. Um, and so, yeah, that sounds, that sounds like a very smart, a very smart vehicle that you've, that you've created there. I, I love, I love the word you're using there because we have always said at EL education that our, our goal is for our model to be not implemented with fidelity, but intimate implemented with integrity. Yeah. And so we, we don't want we are going to follow everything you said exactly as you said it, but we're going to take the core vision and meaning beyond from your model and implement it with deep authenticity and integrity in our setting so that the, the heart of the model comes to life in our world. I love it. I might steal that phrase, if I may, to implement sure. not with fidelity, but with integrity. So a really funny example of that, you know, Montessori schools, um, yes. And there was, there was a recent example of a Montessori school, a friend of mine worked at, and she said that they were, the children were polishing silver because like when Maria Montessori was around, like polishing silver was a thing that used to happen in the house. And so, you know, that was, that was just like the chore that needed doing. And now like a hundred years later, people are like faithfully polishing silver without any real understanding as to why they're doing it. And so absolutely fidelity. <laughs> It's uh yeah, it's just like the the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law and all of that. Um, exactly. Amazing. Okay, so so let's wrap this up then, uh, Ron. And thank you so much for for sharing your reflections on this. What a wonderful read! It's been so lovely to revisit it and very re-energizing. Um, Twenty years after you after it was first published, let let's wrap this up with with these three questions that I all, always ask to all my guests. And this is the rethinking education part of the of the conversation, really. And the three questions are essentially positives, challenges, and solutions. And we've touched on we've touched in in a sense on all three of those at some point in this conversation. But let's just really zoom in on them. So, in terms of positives, we were we were just painting quite a bleak picture, weren't we, as to like the, the way that the system's going? What do you see out there that's that that's really positive that you that you like the look of something that you would like to boost the signal of in some way well i think a, a, a couple positives one positive for me is that and i don't know how much this is true in britain but in the us i think there's a greater understanding in the moment that educating the whole child matters meaning making sure students from all different identities, from all different backgrounds, feel that they belong in school, that they thrive in school as a human being, as well as academically, that those things are synergistic, that you 
that all learning is social and emotional, that students who don't feel like they belong aren't going to succeed academically. And so we have to focus on the social emotional health of kids and on an equitable education that's meeting the needs of all kids, not just the kids from backgrounds that are more suited to easy academic access. And I, I think that change has happened in the US for a couple of reasons. One is the pandemic just woke people up to how hard life can be and that a lot of students and adults are struggling with their own social emotional health in ways that we better take seriously. Another is that there's been real advancements in the science of learning where it's clear that it's it's in it's irrefutable that that learning is social and emotional for students in a way that if students don't feel safe in school, physically safe, emotionally safe, socially safe, they shut down, they don't take risks, they don't lean in, and that we have to make the cultures of schools places where kids feel safe socially, emotionally, and academically to take risks and try and learn. That, that the science, there's, there's, a, there's a whole constellation of scientific research that's been done in the last 10 years that is just making clear to everyone that we need a much more whole child approach in schools. That to me is, is very positive. And I also feel like students are always a ray of hope for me because despite all the things we're getting wrong as cultures in valuing education and valuing teachers, students are continually wanting to do good work and stand up for what's right in the world. They're walking out, they're having protests, they're doing project work, they're wanting the world to be better. Students still have some idealism in their hearts, and sometimes they have more sense than the adults in this culture right now. So I have a lot of faith in students, if we can just empower them to get voices out there for what's right, for what's just. So I think that there, there are some, some positive trends in the moment where we can take more seriously the holistic culture of schools. We had a fairly reductionist view James in the States that started in 93, 94 from a, a federal law called No Child Left Behind. That's right, yeah. Where exam scores were the only way districts were measured. And the intent was good. The intent was if we look really closely at the exams of every school and we disaggregate by different backgrounds of students, we'll find those schools that are underserving kids from marginalized backgrounds, and we can put pressure on them to improve. And I think that intent was just was right. And to some degree, it did shine the light on some underperforming schools. However, the general effect of it was to make everyone in America exam crazy, like every school just started focusing on exams, and they cut out anything that wasn't tested. Yeah. So arts were cut out and physical education was cut out and recess was cut out and enrichment was cut out and social health was cut out. And people just focused on mathematics and literacy learning to get ready for exams in a reductionist way. And the general result after 15, 20 years of that initiative was no progress at all. The United States does no better than it used to on international measures of math and literacy than it did 20 years ago. And in fact, worse in some ways. And I think people realize focusing only on exam scores is not only reductionist, but it's not 
it doesn't work. Doesn't work. Interesting. And that that clearly links to what you were just saying about the social and emotional stuff, that if kids are not connecting emotionally or to one another, to, to what they're learning, um, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, isn't it? You know, like, I, I agree, it does come from a good place. And I think that that's also a cause for optimism. Like we were talking about ideology earlier and people who would consider themselves to be, to be like, you know, from, from a different ideological camp, from a more traditionalist camp than you or I would identify with. Are, doing, are in it for the right reasons, you know. They really right. genuinely care about the improving outcomes, especially improving outcomes for, for kids from disadvantaged backgrounds. Um, and and I think that lots of lots of really interesting work is done in that, you know, with that with those good intentions at the centre. But as you say, you know, the science is in, is accruing, isn't it? Like you talked about, the, the, the most listened to episode of this podcast is with um, a neuroscientist from UCLA called Mary Helen Imodino-Yang. I don't know if you're familiar with her work. Um, she, she wrote a brilliant book called Emotions, Learning and the Brain and has done tons of really interesting research around the importance and, and just how in, like inseparable emotions are from cognition right. that, that you just can't separate them out you can't turn it off just because you're not focusing on it and again you know to, to to come back to that retrieval practice thing when kids enter a classroom now in this country they're, they're nearly always met with a with a retrieval quiz on the board a do now test and it's like what did you do last week last month last year and it's a frontal lobe activity you know it's just like it's a purely cognitive enterprise but if their nervous system is dysregulated if their emotions are getting in the way if they've got family problems, if they've not eaten, if they've not slept, if somebody just ghosted them in the corridor. There's like a hundred reasons why a kid might arrive at your lesson and their frontal lobes aren't online, you know, and then they might end up getting into conflict with the teacher because they're, they're a bit dysregulated and they're being told to do this quiz and they're just not in the zone. And then they can, you know, that can spiral out of control and they can have a bit of flare up and you get all of these problems happening with, you know, very strict behavior management systems that sort of escalate everything really quickly to get the kid out of the out of the room so the others can focus um but like you say the science is is really accruing i wonder if there's is there anything that you would point to and on that front on the social and emotional learning is there anyone who's whose work that you've been influenced by uh, well there's a whole uh network of scientists that work uh, that were part of an alliance in the U.S. called SOLD, Science of Learning and Development, S-O-L-D. Mm -hmm. Linda Darling-Hammond and oh, yeah. Yeah. her yeah. research team sort of led that. Um, and it builds off the work of Carol Dweck, the mindset researcher, and so many of the people that studied under Carol Dweck, like Greg Walton and David Yeager and Dave Panescu and Jason Akanafua, or all students who are into building mindsets of continuous improvement for all students, not just a select group of students that have deeply influenced me and, and, and my work. Uh, I, I would say, though, I, I don't know if you have many traditionalists who listen to your podcast, but I would like to create a bridge to them right now to say a traditionalist might feel that, wait a minute, School is for high standards in academics, particularly mathematics and literacy, not for social-emotional work. And I would say I am deeply in favor of raising our standards for mathematics and literacy and science. I would like higher standards and higher quality student work, just as they would. That I, they, they and I would be in total agreement on that. I just think 
it has to be that and a healthy social, emotional, academic environment of growth mindset and risk taking. Mm-hmm. It's not one or the other. It's both. So it's not forgetting about high standards for academics, especially math and literacy and science and history. It's raising standards in those at the same time as you're raising support for a culture where kids can thrive to do higher quality work. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And and it's unclear how many uh, how many trads listen to the podcast. I know that there are some, but um, but yeah, I, I I totally agree. You know, we're we're, we're playing the same game here, and we and we need people on both sides. You know, you need people exactly. who are really good at the subject-based stuff, the subject-based instruction. You need those people, but you also need there to be a balance between them and the people who get the need to educate the whole child. Right. It's a balance question. So so let's take these final two together, if if, if we may. And you can do this as a quick-fire question, if you like. What's the major problem that you think we face currently, and what do you see as the fix to that problem? Yeah, I I think... The major problem right now is that in the end, the educational experience for kids in a building is shaped by the adults in that building, that the the student culture can't be ahead of the staff culture in the building, that we that when education happens in schools, the culture of the adults in the building is going to shape the whole experience of learning for students and that. The big challenge right now is that education is not receiving that respect and support. Educators are not receiving the the respect and support that they need to feel proud of their work, to keep getting better at their work. Schools have to be places where teachers feel safe and, and all support staff in the school feel safe, no matter what their background is, no matter where they come from, whatever their race, whatever their gender identity, whatever their sexual orientation, whatever their academic background and and pedigree is, they should feel valued and safe and respected in the school. And we have a societal situation where people are bashing educators in a way that's so unhealthy for us all. We're not investing financially and respect-wise in education as we should. That's the biggest challenge for me. And I think the solution is to do our best, as we've spoke about, about building our own islands, building our XPs, where they are islands of respect and valuing of educators, all educators in the building, where they are supporting and pushing each other to be their best selves. If we can do that for ourselves as adults, kids will thrive. It, it's the, the biggest support for kids and the biggest constraint for kids is if they can't see it modeled in the adults in the building, they can't picture it for themselves. So we've got to build islands where adult educators are respected deeply, no matter where they come from, and places where adult educators in the building feel like I'm getting better all the time. It's a continuous improvement process for me being in this profession. I'm always being pushed to be better at what I do by people who value me and respect me. Mm. What a beautiful note to end on. Thank you, Ron, for for giving so generously of your time. It's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege to to be able to spend this time with you. My son was very excited that I was going to be spending some time with the Austin's butterfly guy. <laughs> um, and so, um, yeah, it's been it's been really really 
very insightful. I know that my listeners will be really looking forward to this to this episode coming out. Um, is there anything that you would that you would um, like to say to our listeners by way of a, as a parting comment? Is there anywhere that you would recommend that they that they visit or anywhere that they could find out anything more about any anything that's coming up for you in the future? Sure. Well, first, I'd say what a pleasure it was. This is the longest interview I've ever done, James, and wow. you are a masterful interviewer. Um, Very kind. It really understands my work really well and pushed and asked great questions, I thought, throughout the interview. It was a total pleasure to be engaged in this conversation with you. And um, for your listeners, I would say I work at a nonprofit, EL Education, and everything we create except for our print books is free and open because our mission is to spread these ideas. And so if people go to eleducation.org, they can download videos, they can download documents, they can download student work, they can download curriculum um, and share in ideas and be part of that movement. I Part of our website is a collection of beautiful student work called Models of Excellence that I created with my colleagues at EL and at Harvard Graduate School of Education about 15 years ago. That's just hundreds and hundreds of pieces of beautiful student work from all over the world, a lot of work from the UK and there. And so I would invite all the listeners, if you have beautiful student work from your students, go on to Models of Excellence and open the Submit Work tab and submit work. It won't always be uploaded. I mean, we have a curation team that looks at work and uploads the, the best of what is submitted, but it can't hurt to submit work because then it gets shared with thousands of viewers every week. So mm -hmm. I would say if you have beautiful student work, go to modelsofexcellence.eleducation.org and press submit work and upload beautiful writing, essays, science work, history work, artistic work of your students that perhaps we could then share with the world. That would be lovely. And I know that many of our listeners are, are homeschoolers and unschoolers and parents and young people. Um, and I assume that you would welcome submissions from them as well. Absolutely. Any it's it's for us, what we call it in the US is a K to 12 catchment. So pre-university, pre-college, mm -hmm. but in any school and any background or homeschool, doesn't matter. Anybody in that framework could submit student work that 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 they're proud of and we're always happy to get submissions amazing there you go there's a challenge to our listeners um thank you so much i really enjoyed that conversation thank you james for your time and thanks to all the listeners who stuck with this a very rich conversation thank you for hosting this show time is a measure of change